Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Welcome once again to the Our Man in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor. This podcast is all about the media and journalism and the world around us and that kind of thing. Now, I know I promised you an interview with somebody this week, but unfortunately, we haven't been able to uh, to set that particular interview up. So that is coming down the line. It's a whole bunch of other interviews coming down the line. Um, it's often hard when you're doing a free podcast for people that maybe doesn't have the sort of the broadest reach in the world to go, yeah, why should I talk to you and that kind of thing? And eventually you convince them to go, yeah, okay. But it's always hard to sort of, you know, you can't force people, you can't put a gun to their head and say, look, get on Skype or meet me in this place and let's go do this thing. So, you know, you have to respect the fact that people are busy, but they also have to respect the fact that you, dear listener, deserve to hear their words of wisdom about this particular field. And it's always great to be able to bring you those interviews. And at the moment, like there's about six people on the slate at the moment, but it was just unfortunate that this week I couldn't actually manage to get any of them to uh, just get them in the right place at the right time in front of a microphone to share their insight with you. But that doesn't mean that there's not going to be a, post- a podcast this week because one of the things that keeps coming up again and again and again in social media and in sort of uh, the discussion around media and journalism is that of sourcing. So I thought I might use this podcast just to explain to you a little bit, regardless of whether you're an editor, a photographer, a journalist, or a, just a media consumer, somebody who reads a lot of news or watches a lot of TV, um about sourcing right why do i want to talk to you about this today well it's like this um you may have noticed that brexit is in a lot of the headlines lately right so there's boris johnson and there's this deal and there's that deal and there's the dup and there's the brexiteers and there's the remainers and there's the eu and there's brussels and there's donald tusk and all these kinds of things right so there's a huge amount of news flowing about right and an awful lot of it is the kind of thing where a source said somebody with knowledge of the situation said and it's getting used and abused by journalists left right and center while they're trying to get one up on one another right so what i wanted to sort of talk to you about i wanted to try to explain just a little bit is how these things work and what you can expect from it and indeed if you are one of the people working in the field what you can do to sort of restore the credibility of something which has become uh, very questionable indeed over the last time over the last while um I know BBC's uh, politics editor has come in for a lot of criticism because basically uh, she's putting out stuff and saying a Downing Street source or a source inside Downing Street and that kind of thing, right? So what does that mean when you hear it, right? So the fundamental thing about sourcing is sourcing is like journalists nobody cares what they think of anything right but sourcing is how we know that something has happened right how can we prove how can we what evidence is there for that something has happened or that somebody has said something or that something is going on in the world right as a journalist you need to source every statement in every story unless it's something that is clearly and obviously in the public domain like the titanic sank JFK was shot, that kind of thing. We know that these things happen. You don't have to say that it was first reported by this person, that person, whatever. It's just, it's a historical fact. The Holocaust, it happened, that's it. So you don't have to go back and source those things. But you may have to source things around them, new information that comes out about them, right? So we'll say 
if a bank robbery happens in the shopping centre not far from where I'm sitting, okay? How do I know that's happened? Well, I might have heard it from the police spokesperson. So then I can source that story to the police said that a bank robbery is taking place or has taken place in a local shopping centre in Stockholm, right? That's it. That's all that sourcing is. You're telling people how you know certain information to be true, right? Um, so how like how do you go about sort of establishing that? Well, you have to tell people early in your story. Again, nobody cares unless I am the eyewitness. Nobody cares what I write. A bank robbery has taken place or is taking place. What they cared about is the veracity of the information, the amount of truth contained within it. So obviously then, you have to tell them as early as possible, you have to give them the tools they need to make the decision whether or not this is credible. So a bank robbery is taking place, police say. Oh great, great, that's the police. It's a state agency. Uh, you know, they're experts in their field. They know when crimes are taking place. So you can take that as being fairly true, right? You can take that as being a statement of fact, right? Um, that's the most basic level of sourcing, right? But what you're seeing a lot, and particularly in politics, it happens in business as well, and it happens in sports as well, with agents and this kind of thing, and players speaking off the record, but it's mostly in politics, and there's a reason for that, because politics, you know, anonymous sourcing is something that's used as a tool by spin doctors to do stuff, right? But if your source needs to be anonymous, you need to explain to your readers why that is right so two things you have to do you have to do is if you can't use their name and you can't say their position you have to somehow indicate to your reader why this person should be trusted to speak on this particular subject right um a source inside downing street a source close to the prime minister and that kind of thing it's very difficult often to describe a source without actually revealing something about them that may cause them to be so outed and to be named in public and you don't want to do that obviously if you're trying to protect them but you need to give uh, your reader some sort of indication as to you know what their seniority is and why they need to remain anonymous so if we take a source inside downing street why would they need to remain anonymous is it because they're afraid of losing their job? Well, that might be the case. You don't want to see them victimised for that. But is it because they're trying to do something underhand? Are they trying to undermine the opposition? Are they trying to undermine the democratic process? Are they trying to undermine Europe? So you have to take all these things into account when deciding whether or not to grant them anonymity. Is it ever okay to speak what uh, off the record or what's called on background? They're two different things, right? Off the record is basically, no, this is not for publication. On background is, I'm going to explain this to you, but I don't want my name used about it. But I give you information that may prove useful when you go speaking to other people, right? Um, those two things, you would seldom name people. I mean, people tell you stuff about soccer players and people tell you stuff about politicians, that kind of thing. I would consider that background. It's just information that I happen to know, but I'm not going to publish it without going through the journalistic process of confirming it and that kind of thing. So it's just information that's out there. It's kind of like a library. It's stuff that you can use and you can go to. But if somebody is saying something to you direct for publication, and Dominic Cummings, the advisor to Boris Johnson, is the man who's most accused of this uh, in the number 10 Downing Street at the moment, that he says stuff, he refuses to have his name put onto it, but people report it anyway because it's pretty juicy, you know? So that's where the thing uh, becomes contentious or where it becomes difficult. Is he saying this because, you know, he's revealing something about the inner workings of government or is he saying this to score political points, right? And as journalists and as editors and as media, uh, media outlets, there is a responsibility on us to make that judgment. Just because somebody wants to be anonymous doesn't immediately mean that it should be granted. So for you as a reader... Uh, 
the, the, the basic rule of thumb is that the weakest source that you can have is a name who's cannot be, who, who uh, is a person whose name cannot be published right that's the weakest source out there because if you're not willing to put your name to something then i'm sorry it's you know your credibility doesn't necessarily go down but if you're not willing to hold up your hand in public and say yeah i said that or i indicated that or i reported that that's not much use to anybody because you know it's harder to make the judgment as to whether or not that is true right uh, you need to be very, very specific in terms of enabling people to gauge the accuracy of what's being said and, you know, how close you are and how qualified you as a source are to that information, right? Um, so, yeah, uh, using anonymous sources is not really the best way of doing it. If you're trying to provide something that's accurate and reliable and that kind of thing, it's very, very difficult to, to do that with uh, unnamed sources. Um, can you use another source that is in, is prepared to be named in that situation? Well, then use that source instead. It's always better to have a name than to not have a name. Um, so, yeah, the, the balance needs to be struck between telling the story, like a story that's in the public interest, and protecting both the source, but you're also protecting yourself, right? In certain instances... Uh, one of the most obvious ones is where somebody needs to remain anonymous because there's a threat to their life or their safety or their liberty, right? Uh, Chelsea Manning would be a fine uh, example of that, right? WikiLeaks that would all be a fine example of that. The collateral murder video that was released and it became very embarrassing for the US State Department and the Department of Defense where basically American armed forces were seen to be basically murdering people from the air with missiles. Uh, in Iraq, I think it was at the time, right? So if a source comes to you with that, there is an immediate danger to somebody like Chelsea Manning. So, you know, th their job is in danger, their life may be in danger, they may be accused of espionage, and yet it is in the public interest. It's in the American public interest to know, it's in the global public interest to know what armed forces are doing around the world and how they're acting, especially when it comes to the taking of human life. When you are exerting deadly force, you better be damn sure that you have the moral and ethical uh, gods and laws and rights on your side to do that so when a source like that reports it then the obvious thing becomes to try to protect that source as much as possible doesn't do again going back to the dominic cummings example that doesn't excuse us from questioning their motives right because every source everybody speaking to a journalist has an agenda whether they like it or not whether they know it or not. They're all speaking to you for a reason. It might be, in the case of Chelsea Manning, that they what they see as an egregious wrong needs to be righted. It might be, as Dominic Cummings, that you know he believes so much in uh, leaving the EU that it has to happen by hook or by crook, right? So they all have an agenda, and that has to be taken into account uh, when you're being when you're trying to make that decision as to whether or not you're going to use them or use their information so the fact that they need to be anonymous doesn't excuse you from questioning their motives you have to ask yourself why are they telling me this why are they giving me this information why are they doing it now am i being trusted because it's in the public interest or am i being used as a megaphone or a messenger for them are they talking to me because my article is going to be read by a thousand, a hundred thousand, a million people. Or do they actually, are they doing this because they think it's the right thing? Are they doing this because they might benefit financially from it? Is another question that you have to ask yourself, especially when it comes to anonymity. There were allegations around the time of the Brexit referendum that Nigel Farage went on TV to basically concede the referendum to cause a sort of a blip in the market that he and his friends and hedge funds and then uh, could then exploit economically, right? Now, that's nothing that has been proved or anything else like that. You can't sort of say what their motives were or weren't in that situation, but it is something that happened and that may possibly have benefited certain sellers in the marketplace or buyers in the marketplace. 
so if somebody if Nigel Farage is talking to you and honestly is this what he's trying to do is he trying to manipulate public opinion is he trying to manipulate the market is he trying to manipulate a parliament in Brussels or the UK or whatever else it is every single source has an agenda and you need to work out what that is and what effect that's going to have on the judgment that you make as to whether to use their information or not or whether to grant them anonymity now when you're reporting on something that a source says to you anonymously or information they give to you anonymously you immediately assume responsibility for it if it turns out to be inaccurate or untrue right because you're the one making the judgment you're the one saying i've weighed this up i've thought about the motives i've checked it as best i can uh, but i deem this to be true or most likely to be true or that this is worth publishing this is worth putting before the public as a de facto statement of fact right and when you do this, there's no point in turning around and saying, well, my source lied to me. You make that judgment beforehand. You need to make it to the best of your ability, and people will lie to you in very, very skillful ways, but you need to make that judgment to the best of your ability beforehand to ensure that that doesn't happen, right? And now, unfortunately, especially in politics, the trust between journalists and sources, it gets betrayed over and over again. It happens incredibly regularly, and yet, at the highest level of politics in Europe, certainly at the moment, there are seldom any consequences. Journalists are still going back to the same people. They're still quoting them. They're still granting them anonymity, despite the fact that these people have repeatedly proved themselves to be untrustworthy. So they're telling you stuff that proves not to be true. Now, as a journalist, the first thing you should do then is they go in, in cold storage. If somebody lies to me once, that's it. I can never trust anything that they say to me ever again because they've done it. Well, I don't care why they do it. If they've lied to me once, that's it. It's over, as it should be. But yet, certain people are saying, oh, well, it didn't really work out that time. But it doesn't matter because they have another juicy line for me. They have another juicy story for me that's going to be at the top of the news agenda for the next little while. And I want to be there. I want my name and lights and that kind of thing. So I'm going to go with it. You can't do that. If a source has lied to you once, uh, then they're out. The fault is not with them if they're used again. The fault is entirely with you as a journalist, with your media outlet, and with your editor. If you continue to facilitate them, you have assumed that responsibility. And eventually, and this is what's happening now over Brexit, and it's happening to a certain extent uh, in the American presidential situation, we'll call it, because it's not a race yet, right? That when a reporter keeps going back to the same sources and keeps reporting the same thing, despite them later turning out not to be true, people lose faith in journalism. They lose faith first in the reporter, but then it's very, very easy for them to say, oh, journalists are all the same. And they just report what they're told. And they don't ever question anything. And they never ask proper follow-up questions, that kind of thing. And you know what? To a certain extent, that's true. But you, everybody then gets tired with the same brush. So somebody who's diligent gets tired with the same brush as somebody who's basically parroting lines uh, left, right, and centre that they're being fed by people in power. Another thing about this is, and I think it cropped up again just before I started recording this podcast, is that in Ireland, another journalist has made the switch. They've jumped the fence from being a journalist to being a sort of a PR person or consultant for the government, right? Now, that's a very, very dangerous thing to be doing because that enables people who would like to question your impartiality or your ability to report uh, in, in an impartial fashion. It enables them to question because they say, okay, well, all the reporting you did 
uh, about this government was basically one extended job interview and now all of a sudden you're getting rewarded with 100 or 150,000 euros a year because you've moved into communications for some political party or for some minister for, for some department so you know again when you choose to act in that way and especially if you've been using sort of sources or anonymous sources from within the department or within the government that you have joined it looks really really bad in terms of credibility so again you've got to take all these things into account and once you made that step it's very very difficult uh, to go back Another thing about anonymous sources is that just because a source says something, particularly an anonymous source says something, that doesn't mean it's true. So it doesn't matter if something is on the record, off the record, if it's a named source or an anonymous source, you still need to try to confirm what it is they're saying. Can you get confirmation some other way? Can you ask a government department? Can you ask another spokesperson? Can you ask a minister? Can you ask somebody who's prepared to go on the record to confirm that? And this is often true if it's a she said, he said thing, right? So if somebody says, somebody in government number 10 says, oh, Labour are doing this, this and this, then you've got to go to Labour and say, is this true? And you've got to try to get somebody who's a named spokesperson there, who's willing to put their name to it and say, no, I categorically deny this, or yes, this is the way that we're planning to act. So you can't just print what the anonymous source says. You can't just publish it, or you can't just have that in your report. You need to give the right of reply, but you also need to do your level best to confirm what it is you're being told by the anonymous source, all the more so because they're anonymous. Because if they're not willing to put their name to it, when you're confirming this or trying to verify the information, you need to find two or maybe three other sources that could confirm that for you. Can you get that confirmation some other way? Can you get context that strengthens that story? Is it likely to be true in that case? Because the weakest kind of story is a single source, a single anonymous source. That is the weakest possible story that you have. To me, there's almost no circumstances in which it's permissible uh, to, to publish a story that has a single source that is unverifiable. There's just, it's just rumor, it's just conjecture, it's one person's opinion. It cannot be classed as, it's, it's not even subject to the process, the editorial process of journalism. You can't confirm anything about it. You know, it's the weakest possible form of story. And yet, again and again, we're seeing this. Uh, another thing that you, you have to look at what it is that your anonymous source is saying, right? You can never allow them to make allegations or statements or to attack people just using the cloak of anonymity. That is not something that, you know, they might love to do it. They might love to be able to say these things or to level these accusations in the media, in the public domain, without having their names stuck to it. But th that's just not permissible. It's just, it's not credible to be able to do that. You know, somebody comes out and says something about a sports star or a politician or a business or a company, right? You can't just come out and attack them and then not attach a name to it. You know, they have to be able to meet that criticism. They have to be able to meet those attacks and you have to be able to verify if there's any merit in that whatsoever. Uh, it's basically it's a fundamental principle of fairness to allow uh, somebody to, to meet those allegations and to know who is making those allegations against them. That's why it's very, very unusual uh, for anybody in a court case to remain anonymous. Anonymous witnesses are very, very unusual. And it's like it's only in very rare cases that a court in any jurisdiction will allow these things to happen. Finally, I want to get onto the subject of social media, right? Because, again, this happened to me this week. I ended up arguing with a Swedish journalist. Um, over something like Twitter is not journalism right what you see on Facebook can be journalism it may not be journalism social media is not subject to this the rigorous kind of fact checking and verification that journalism should be subject to so occasionally you will see something I do it myself you know I will see something that uh, you make an observation uh, based on a particular situation 
on the or based on the the information that's available about a particular situation that's not journalism right that is an observation me as a person me as a, whatever i'm making an observation i'm speculating that kind of thing it's not journalism speculation has no place in journalism rumor has no place in journalism verifiable fact verifiable sources that's what journalism is about right but you need to understand that distinction when you're going out on social media and when you're looking for information and saying that this political editor reported something or this political journalist reported something you need to understand that sometimes they can be venting sometimes they, they can be thinking out loud sometimes that they can be speculating on these things do not consider that to be journalism right if you see something that they print or, or if they publish on their social media uh, bank being robbed say police that's pretty much journalism right there, right? Because it's it's sourced to the police and it's an event that's happening. They can they've obviously sort of confirmed this kind of thing, right? That's what they're suggesting that they've done is that they've confirmed this thing, right? So you need to separate the person for the Twitter account. You need to separate uh, separate the journalism that they are publishing or the you know the stuff that has been done according to the journalistic process and separate that from them just wondering if Manchester United need a new centre forward. That's what you need to be doing there. So you cannot take everything as read. You cannot take everything a journalist puts out on Twitter as being journalism. It's it's just, it doesn't go through an editorial process for the most part. In some places it does, most parts it doesn't. There's no editor looking over their shoulder. There's no second pair of eyes. There's no rigorous uh, process of confirmation. And to assume then that, you know, that they're anonymous sources, that there's somebody that they speak to in the halls of power, you know, they've had an offhand conversation about it. They haven't verified any of these things. And for them to be tweeting out these things, indeed, you can ask yourself if it's wise for them to be tweeting out these things at all because of the fact that, you know, it opens them up to question. You know, oh, you're talking to this person. You're not naming the people who are there. You're not speaking to the other side. So they're just some of the things around sourcing that we need to understand better, both as consumers of journalism and as creators of journalism, because it's getting to the extent now where, you know, basically anybody is being allowed to say anything. And this is a dangerous path to go down. If you're going to allow anonymous people to attack or to suggest or to put out innuendo about others, about processes, about motivations, that kind of thing, it becomes a very, very slippery slope. And it, uh, it does something that we're not supposed to do. We're supposed to provide clarity. And instead, what we're doing is confusing the situation. And I always go back to one of the first things I was told one of the first days I walked through the door at the Reuters news agency 17 years ago and uh, one of the things that one of the maxims that they had in the newsroom was get it first but first get it right I'll be back with you with an interview maybe this week maybe next week depending on how time works out and that kind of thing but enjoy whatever it is whatever media you are consuming and get in touch if there's anything you're wondering about or you'd like me to talk about or to cover or anything else like that have a great week wherever you are in the world <laughs>